We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two-part interview. The first part was released last week in our previous episode of Encountering Silence. So Christine, I'm just curious, there's a lot of ways to approach this. How do you approach, how do you see wild? What does wild mean for you? Well, wild for me is, you know, breaking beyond the confines of the limits of our imagination, which often is, you know, cultural beliefs and individual judgments and patterns that we live with that keep us from doing certain things in our lives. And ultimately, wild for me is a doorway into this more expansive image of the divine. So this sense that God is bigger than anything that I can imagine, bigger than anything that I can ever sort of get my mind around, my limited mind. And so wild for me is this uh, understanding of the great mystery that is. So there isn't any way to, uh, you can't commodify wild or mystery. You can't, you know, define it or, um, but this sense of, uh, this gift of wildness also asks us to access our intuitive knowing and our embodied knowing as well. So mm. we are invited to drop out of the predominance of our culture is the linear kind of rational, uh, logical way of reasoning, which is an important part of who we are uh, as human beings to understand things. But there's this whole other capacity that we have that I think wild invites us into you know which is is these intuitive thing um understandings that maybe come through through the dream world but also come through encounters in nature where perhaps we feel like there's signs or symbols that are you know reaching out to us that's where we can have that sense like nature might actually be a guide for us uh offering you know invitations through those moments that shimmer or catch our attention mm. I'm tempted, um, and Christine, let me know if this is okay or not, but I'm tempted to read a letter, parts of a letter that Evelyn Underhill wrote to C.S. Lewis in 1941. I'll, I'll, I'll try to be brief with this, but she was responding to his book, The Problem of Pain. He had sent her a copy and she takes issue with what he has to say about animals in the book. Mm. And so it's her letter to, to C.S. Lewis from January 13th, 1941. It's in her book, The Letters of Evelyn Underhill. And she writes, and, and I'm going to skip around a little, but she writes, where, however, I do find it impossible to follow you is in your chapter on animals. <laughs> she, quote, she quotes him. The tame animal is in the deepest sense the only natural animal. The beasts are to be understood only in their relation to man and through man to God end quote. Underhill says, this seems 
that's to me, frankly, an intolerable doctrine mm. and a frightful exaggeration of what is involved <laughs> in the primacy of man. Is the cow which we have turned into a milk machine or the hen we have turned into an egg machine really nearer the mind of God than its wild ancestor? Mm. You surely can't mean that or think that the robin redbreast in a cage doesn't put heaven in a rage, but is regarded as an excellent arrangement. Mm. Your own example of the good man, good wife, and good dog in the good homestead is a bit smug and utilitarian, <laughs> don't you think? Over against the wild beauty of God's creative action in the jungle and deep sea. And if we ever get a sideway glimpse of the animal in itself, the animal existing for God's glory and pleasure and lit by his light, and what a lovely experience that is, we don't owe it to the Pekingese, the Persian cat, or the canary, but to some wild free creature living in completeness of adjustment to nature, a life that is utterly independent of man. Mm. This, thank heaven, is the situation of all but the handful of creatures we have enslaved. And <laughs> so she goes on, but she ends by saying, when my cat goes off on her own occasions, I'm sure she goes with God, but I do not feel so sure of her theological position when she is <laughs> sitting up sitting on the best chair before the drawing room fire. <laughs> Perhaps what it all comes to is this, that I feel your concept of God would be improved by just a touch of wildness. Yes. Oh, that's great. Where, that where is wonderful? that from? From a letter from you le said. The letters of Evelyn Underhill. So I'm going to engage in some bald speculation here. But nice. She wrote, she wrote him that letter in 1941. And in, of course, what, 1946, 1947, somewhere in that area, uh, Lewis writes The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, yes. where we are introduced to his image of Aslan, whom he describes as a good lion, but not a tame lion. Yes. And mm -hmm. so, so I rather like to think that Evelyn Underhill maybe is the, is the godmother of Aslan from this, from this letter. And, wow. um, and, I, yeah. and apparently his letter back, you know, I have the letters of, of C.S. Lewis, but I haven't read them. But apparently his letter back, he got quite defensive. Hmm. Uh -huh. she, really, she really struck a nerve. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good sign she was right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, it ties in so much. And this is the thing that I think for me is, you know, living in the Atlanta suburbs, you know, I can go up to Western North Carolina and go out into the woods, you know, or North Georgia. Um, but I don't really experience wildness even there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's still it's parkland. It's managed by the Department of the Interior. You know, I I think that that for most of us, you know, and, and Underhill touches on this, that that we really don't have access to that kind of deep wildness, maybe the way our ancestors did. Right. And so, um, which is not to say, you know, of course, the Holy Spirit is at work. And there's a level in which we are all wild, even though we have been dead. Yes. So, um, you know, this, this is why I love cats, because you're never quite sure. You know, uh -huh. we, we, ha we have two that are animal rescue. Well, all of our cats are rescues, but two of them were feral out of our front yard. You know, and, and you can still see the wildness in their eyes just a little bit, you know, yep. even though they'll, they'll come and crawl in our laps now. So well, I don't know. I'm not, there isn't a question here. I just felt like sharing that. With yeah. You. Well, and something about that instinctual being, I mean, you know, our dog, it could not be more domesticated. I mean, she lives the life of 
<laughs> complete luxury <laughs> sleeping on the bed and you know being fed her her meals and begging for food from the table but there is something about the instinctual animal being which you know she's obviously the animal that I have the most intimate connection with mm. you know that gives gives me a window there's a knowing inside of her that is so different than my knowing and and I can never fully like comprehend or you know get my mind around it but that's part of what makes her such a gift to me is I can I can see that there's moments you know that she she's looking at the world very differently than I am and to give I think animals I think for me what Evelyn Underhill is saying is to give animals their own autonomy outside of what they do for us you know and even if to say one of the things they do for us is to give us a window into this wildness of imagination that is part of the the image of the divine, I think. Yeah, I, I totally appreciate that exchange because this this is my question is is and it connects with that initial thought I had and you gave that lovely response about kind of releasing and opening up. Is this how do we connect back to wild? Because uh, on some level, I, I think we can, I, and I think you think we can because I've, you know, I've read your book. Uh, <laughs> but so, uh, but what's it, it's an interesting thing that always kind of picks at me because everything, as Carl said, you know, everywhere I go, it's managed land, it's you know, it's parks. We as a species, with our technology and everything, we've really kind of put our hands into what, what's that line from. Uh, Hopkins, you know, everything has been seared and tiered by by man mm. by humans and man, and we're touching and ripping into the earth, and and so th- this question becomes: how much is wild and how much is domesticated? Uh, and it, that's an interesting interplay. I think there is, and you've started us giving some clues about how we can get back toward that. But it's always interesting to ask the question: what do we mean by wild, and how do we tap that, and not. Uh, come from this space of control and and something else, you know, that's not wild. So, yeah. You know. Well, I suppose for me, a lot of the, I mean, a lot of the contemplative practices are really about yielding our own sense of control, mm. Uh, mm. confronting our own lack of certainty in the world, uh, embracing our mortality, you know, all of the things uh, that we're facing culturally right now. Right. Uh, and so there's this desert wisdom to me around, I don't know that they would have necessarily called it getting in touch with their wild, but that's what they learned by being out in these wilderness places, right. that that very insecurity and uncertainty that we do live with every day, but we're just not always so conscious of it. Right. I think the more we practice ways to be conscious of it and to live in a life-giving relationship to it. So practices of humility where, you know, we acknowledge that, you know, there are things that happen that are out of control or, you know, lament where we offer grief for the losses that we experience instead of trying to push it aside. I think all of those things for me fall under sort of touching into that wildness and ways we can help practice that as human beings. Our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence. Please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence.
Christine, one question I like to ask when folks like yourself have written numerous books, I wonder if someone is new to your work, where might you suggest they begin? I usually recommend starting with the artist's rule uh, because it sort of expresses the heart of the connection between creativity and contemplative practice for me. Uh, if someone is still not ready yet to embrace the creative part, they might start with um, a book I wrote on Lexio Divina because that is, you know, more sort of the classic contemplative practice and then eventually builds up to praying with art, which might be a way that's more accessible for people to pray with art as opposed to praying as an art maker, you know what I mean? Sort of the, the gateway <laughs> into that mm -hmm. might be a more, a more gentle way to approach that. I'd like to kind of bring the conversation back to silence. In, in your book, you do have a chapter on silence. And I love it in that chapter that you talk about St. Coleman of Kilmacdua, how you see him as a teacher for us today, and maybe how that ties in with your concept of the, the desert of the heart or, or, or silence as part of our experience of the Earth Monastery. Mm. Yeah, Kilmacdua uh, Abbey, the ruin there is, is a beautiful setting and not too far from there uh, in the Burren is uh, St. Coleman's cave and his hermitage where he's said to have spent uh, seven years. I'm not sure if you had a chance to go there, uh, but there's, no, uh, it's, it's this beautiful setting. We actually bring our pilgrims there on our last day of our pilgrimage in Galway because it's such a special place. And we we walk, it's about a half hour walk across the Burren limestone. So it's that sort of sense of being in that desert wilderness space, but of the limestone landscape. And you approach this grove of hazel trees. And when you enter in, there is a cave just slightly up the hill where Coleman uh, was said to have spent seven years. And if you go inside that cave, it's, it's definitely like a one person cave. <laughs> There's not a lot of space in there, but you can sort of imagine him retreating to that place. There's a little chapel ruin and then there's a holy well there. And then of course the hazel grove, the hazel trees in uh, Celtic mythology are this, the uh, symbol for wisdom. <clears throat> and so there's a wonderful story about Coleman going off to this, find this hermitage place. And it says that he brought with him a rooster, a mouse, and a fly. And he, it says he brought the rooster to wake him up for his morning prayers. So sort of his alarm clock. And then if he fell back to sleep, the mouse would nibble on his ear. So the mouse was kind of a snooze alarm. Uh, <laughs> and then the fly walks along the lines of the Psalter to keep his place uh, in his prayers. So you have this you know, monk uh, fleeing out into the, the wilderness of Ireland because he can't find a desert the way the desert monks did. The, the monks would go out into these um, remote places. And uh, he found this place of uh, retreat and silence and uh, this holy well, which would have been, you know, even a pre-Christian holy site uh, that we know that the holy wells were revered long before. And when we go sit in that place, we always have our pilgrims spend, you know, maybe an hour in silence there just to be present to calm in spirit and to the, the wild of the place and the whatever the the wisdom that might be speaking. And, and so there's something about 
connecting to that ancient longing to seek out those spaces of silence and beauty and connection and you sit there and you're you know surrounded by the trees of wisdom and you can bless yourself with the holy well and request that you know grace of healing in your life and you can sit in that cave and imagine Coleman you know praying for hours and hours as he would have <laughs> you know to this <laughs> contributing to this liturgy of praise that's already happening all around him. Uh, so this sense of, um, I love Coleman because he's not very well known outside Ireland, but there's many sites around here that are connected to him. And it's clear that he, his uh, time spent in that place, you know, was the kind of seed for, you know, eventually developing that Kilmacdua Abbey. So that, you know, very large monastic complex. And so the, the gift, I think, in that story of the way that that seeking out that space of silence, you know, like Jesus going out into the desert for 40 days before his ministry, and sort of that time, that threshold time and that initiation time that silence can initiate us into a bigger calling, something that we haven't yet had space or time to hear. Mm. I've been fascinated with this animal conversation because I've been spending a lot of time watching squirrels lately. Mm. Um, I love, I love, 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 love this, this idea of play with looking at animals and considering mm. that mm. they have a theology of their own. Mm. <laughs> that That's very fun for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think beautiful. Can I uh, maybe close with reading you a short poem about St. Columbanus who had a special relationship to squirrels? Oh, that would be wonderful. <laughs> is that okay? Yeah, totally. Yes. Please. This is from the, the Wisdom of Wild Grace. Uh, and it's about uh, St. Columbanus, who's an Irish monk who went uh, out over to Italy and France to found some monasteries. And it's called St. Columbanus in the Forest. He learned long ago, he doesn't have to seek out wild things, only rest and wait. When his heart is full, he starts to sing until birds twitter and trapeze branch to branch, land tiny feet on his shoulders, brush his bristly face. Squirrels dizzy with delight, maelstrom of scamper and bustle to climb his thin arms, their giggling red heads peer from folds of his robe as if playing a secret game meant only for them, only for those who believe such things are possible. Beautiful. Mm. Thank you. A touch of your Irish wildness to us today. We really it's, appreciate this. It's my pleasure. I'm very delighted to be with all of you thank you yeah thank you so much and, and just once again for for our listeners your uh, work is found at abbeyofthearts.com right yes yes and and then earth our original monastery is now available and um the wisdom of wild grace will be out in the fall of 2020 is that correct correct october october of 2020 wonderful mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you. you.
We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world. Thank you.